It is the day of atonement. This day to which Israel always was looking forward to. The day whereas which God made a way for them to have atonement for their sins that they have committed all through the year so that they may come and appear before their heavenly father clean. This is the day that the high priest would enter the temple to make atonement for the sins of Israel. But there is a problem. For over 2000 years now, the temple has laid in ruin. Israel has had no hope in the procedures and in the Levitical ritual that was laid out for them to receive atonement with the Azazel goat and the offerings had gone prescribed. What is there to do? To where will Israel go? Of course, from the beginning, the Day of Atonement, the Levitical system and all of that was pointing to the coming of a Messiah who would be the only acceptable form of atonement for the sins of mankind. But see, dear brother, dear sister, for us to really come to him and fully grasp his atonement, There are certain things that today I want to walk you through with his story of atonement, with his crucifixion and with what happened to those all around him. But I want to begin today with the simple accusation that started all of this. And that accusation reveals to us so much about the hearts of those who crucified him which includes you and me, by the way, but we'll get to that more later. And it also ushers in and reveals what this new temple of God is supposed to be like. We read in Matthew 26, 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. One of the first things we see is that this accusation actually exposes the hearts of the accusers more than anything, because it seems like in their accusation that they are very concerned with the temple of God. The reality is, is they weren't caring about God's temple as the place that housed the spirit, they may have cared for it as a building. And here's what they used the building for as a means for them to leverage power over the people. Israel in the first century was really capitalizing on the building. That is the temple that stood there. We see this when Yeshua threw over the tables and said that you have made this a den of robbers while this is my father's house because they were money changers who were cheating people. They were overcharging for doves and offerings and things of that nature. We also had an illegitimate priesthood by the time of the first century that was corrupt to the core. And so when Yeshua is making this reference to the den of robbers, many people don't understand that he is actually quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. 
And he, we see this in Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Verse 14, therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, literally is using the same words Yeshua is using when he's overthrowing tables. And these words are in connection to God stating that because Israel was putting their trust in this building and even using this building for corrupt matters and indulging in idolatries of various sorts, because of this, I will do the same to this as I did to Shiloh, which Shiloh represents the previous temple that was destroyed. So Yeshua saying you have made this a den of robbers is a warning just as the prophet Jeremiah gave that this temple will be destroyed as the judgment upon Israel. The temple of the first century has been destroyed and it has not raised for over 2000 years. But there was another temple that was destroyed in the first century, the temple of Yeshua. When Jesus, the temple who was walking, was put on the cross, his body facing death, being put in a grave. But then three days later is raised. That is the temple that he, of course, was speaking about when he warned them that if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And the evidence speaks for itself. There is a temple that was raised, and that is the temple that brings atonement to all of Israel. That is the only temple, that is the only way, that is the only way to atonement for Israel. For if Israel had the typical Levitical temple still standing to this day, they would be putting all of their faith of atonement therein. But God had to lower it so that Yeshua may be raised and all may see him for who he is. And what about that corrupt priesthood in the first century? Well, God had to deal with that as well. We read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The priests and many of the certain Pharisees in the first century were boasting around what has been given to them, boasting in the presence of God within the temple that they have oversight and ministry over. They used it to exalt themselves and their own kingdoms. But anyone who tries to profit off of the presence of God, who tries to boast in the presence of God for their own sakes will swiftly be done away with. And that is exactly what God did with them. And it should serve as a warning towards us that when God gives us his presence in our temples, that we would not boast in that presence. We would not use that presence for our own capital gains, as many in Israel in the first century tried to do. 
Matthew 3 verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. When the Pharisees are boasting in Abraham as their father, that they are they are descendants of Abraham. That is why they're chosen. That is why they are special. That is why they deserve to be the keepers of the presence. When Yeshua, when Jesus responds to them and he tells them that he is able to raise up stones as sons of Abraham, he is using a temple reference. He is using a speech referencing the stones of the temple because Peter later, after it occurred, he said it himself. 1 Peter 2, 5, you yourselves are like living stones, he says, being raised up to make up a new house for the Lord, a holy priesthood unto him. And that this is now the new temples that are raised. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead as the temple to bring the atonement for Israel, but he with him, he said, anyone who believes in me, anyone who puts their trust in me, they will be raised as I was raised. And through this thing that we know as baptism, this all is possible. See, many misunderstand and do not understand that this is the purpose of baptism so that you can participate in the crucifixion account so you can die with him as he died. So your temple can be destroyed so that it can be raised again, rebuilt again as he was rebuilt in three days. And with that, this allows the spirit of God to come in and dwell it because this temple is now living stones, not the dead stones of the dead man, but the living stones of the living man that is born again of the spirit. But this new temple that God calls us to partake in requires our death. It requires our humility. This is not to say in any way that the Levitical system is bad or that it wasn't from God and that it isn't from God, for it is and it is valuable and it is precious, but it was given for a different purpose. See, the Levitical system dependent upon animal atonements, but all of that was simply there to point us to the atonement of Christ, which no animal would ever suffice to take away our sin, no blood of bull or goat. But with this new temple that he raises as the priest of Melchizedek, we receive atonement in the Messiah. And this is really what I want to get to in this teaching is because of that. We become a sort of holy of holies, housing the Holy Spirit with him being with us at all times, having full access for all people, not just those who are clean, not just a high priest worthy of his presence once a year at the Day of Atonement, but for us all who who are in him, who are cleansed by him, we are able to have access to him 24 seven, 365 days of the year anywhere. And this is the temple that Yeshua was speaking about with the Samaritan woman. He said there is coming a temple of spirit and truth. They will not say to worship here or worship there, Mount Gerizim or that mountain or that mountain, but this worship of spirit and truth will be within you. The kingdom of God within you here now. 
It is an atonement that is not done once a year, every year. It is once and for all, and it is done, and it is enough. Hallelujah. Like, let me, I, I want you to really get this, that his atonement is enough. Because many of us, if we do not believe that his atonement is enough for us, if we believe that our sin is too much for the atonement or that or that because his atonement may not cover all of it at all times, what is going to end up happening is we're going to start depending on ourselves. And so, see, dear brothers, sisters, it's so important for us to come to this understanding and belief and faith that truly that he is enough. His atonement is enough. His grace is enough to cover us and clothe us in righteousness. And I want to spend some time speaking about that grace here today. But for us to understand his grace on a deeper level, we have to understand our nature and then his nature more. See, back to that accusation, when they came to him and they said that Jesus, Yeshua, you said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. As we established, yes, he was talking about his body, not the physical temple standing there. But notice the irony. They made the accusation that he is a destroyer of the temple of God, but they are the ones out to destroy the temple of God. Yeshua was never crucified for what he said, for he was innocent. Instead, he was crucified for what they did. They were accusing him of the very thing they were doing. And this speaks a lot about the human fallen nature, about you, about me, about the fact that ultimately our sin blinds us and causes us to project our sin upon someone else. See, they were blinded by their sin of desiring to destroy the temple of God, hating the holy things of God. And they accused Yeshua of wanting to do that while they went ahead and did it. And ultimately, we do the same. We place our sin that blinds us on others. We judge them with our sin and we condemn them by our sin that blinds us to not see that we are actually the ones guilty of it. And this is what is illustrated by the Azazel goat on the Day of Atonement, because the Azazel goat, the priest comes and he puts his hand on the goat, lays the sins of Israel upon the head of the goat and the goat, which was just an innocent goat, is sent away under the condemnation of these sins and Israel they feel free from those sins. This is exactly the same thing as people. When we sin, sin has to go somewhere. Sin is confronting our hearts when we have it. And then we feel like we need to do something with the sin. We feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel condemnation. Sin can't disappear. It has to go somewhere. And so what we do is if we if our sin is not dealt with, we will project it upon someone around us. If we do not confront our own sin, we will confront others with that energy 
and we will push it on others. And that's exactly what they were doing with Yeshua. Israel was literally placing all of the the sin of of the against the temple of God on him. And that is a picture of what he would do on a much larger scale, dying for not just the local Israel, but the world who would be doing the exact same thing towards him. So instead of the first Adam who said to God, it is the woman you gave me when God asked him in the garden, why have you sinned? See, he placed his sin on the woman because it has to go somewhere. Now, instead, Jesus, Yeshua comes and he says that sin that you want to put on me. Do it. I freely take a step forward. I freely go to the cross. I freely carry it. I freely would be nailed to it. I freely take every lash for you. Put it upon me as he turns his cheek. And then he dies. And truly, truly, because he is perfect, the sins of Israel are placed upon him and it dies as he dies. And the sins are taken away. But because he's perfect, he does not remain in the grave and he is raised, raised perfect. And in light of this, in light of who he is and really what we are, because, you know, we can look back and be like, yeah, Israel, they were really mean to him. The reality is, is if you were in that position, you would be in the crowd screaming, crucify him as well for your sins has been part of what crucified him. Even this day, your sins today that you can commit today were placed and passed on his shoulders as well, because when he was on that cross, he endured spiritually the sins of the past, present and the future. Therefore, don't be eager, but be careful as to how you point the finger at someone else to make sure that you're not actually projecting your own sin, hoping to lay it upon someone else becoming a hypocrite, but that you have truly surrendered your sins to Yeshua, believe that he is enough so that he can actually cleanse you and set you free from it so that you can judge righteously. We as a people are very prone to sin and we have all been guilty of destroying temples of God, whether that is the temple of Yeshua, where he said, destroy it and I will rebuild it. We have all played a part in destroying that or whether it is the temples that he has now raised all around us in the form of believers. Some of us have even destroyed them. And God said in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. But while God says that he will destroy those who destroy the temples of God, he also offers a hand of grace for us all. And on this day of atonement, I would like to explore his grace as well. I think that this is something that we do not explore enough because it is his grace that actually sets us free 
to live in righteousness. I want to remind you about the story of Paul, the apostle. When Stephen was stoned, the Bible says that Paul approved of his stoning. I can just imagine Paul standing there with his arms crossed, with a smirk on his face, feeling in feeling joy in his heart as Stephen dies and Stephen's last breaths utter a similar cry as Jesus's last breaths. Stephen saying, Father, do not hold this sin against them. And Yeshua saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I believe that just as Jesus's words were honored by the Father in heaven, hence me and you being able to be saved today and forgiven today. In the same way, Stephen's prayer was honored by the Father for Paul. And Paul later being encountered by the Messiah himself is commissioned to become an apostle a proclaimer of the truth to proclaim that which he before was against. But then, of course, that's kind of a strange concept. I mean, let's just think about it like it's it's one thing for us to imagine that and be like, yeah, we know Paul was forgiven, but think about it. He's someone who threw Christians, believers in prison. He persecuted them. He murdered them. And here God comes and says, I want that one. I'm going to use him to do mighty works. When Ananias heard of this the first time, he was astonished at God's plan. We see Acts 9, 13. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how many evil things he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. This is a very human response. I would have probably said that you would have probably said that God, like, what do you mean? You're going to what, what are you going to do with this guy? He's binding people just like me. And now I need to go speak to him. But God says he is my chosen instrument whom I will use. And he says this Acts 9 verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. While it doesn't make sense who God chooses more often than not, we must expect that. And if God decides to forgive someone like Paul, then we must forgive that person. We must offer mercy and grace and we must respect the chosen instrument of God. If God picked him, no matter his past, man, Paul had the most wretched past of all and God picked him. Don't you then go and look at the past of someone else and say, well, God is not allowed to use him because of his past. I cannot allow him to be used by God. I cannot allow him to be used in ministry. I God, if God has chosen someone as an instrument, who are you? Who am I to say, God, you can't do that. He did it with Paul. He does it today as well. We must do due diligence. The apostles were scared of Paul. We read in Acts 9, 26, they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and proclaimed how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So we do due diligence 
as the other apostles did. They were scared. They were concerned. But there was another witness who said, well, look, God has spoken to me about Paul and I have seen fruit. And the fruit that is the evidence that God is with him. We will know the tree by its fruit because he was proclaiming Jesus everywhere. And so while we could should be cautious, we should also open our hearts to the fact that God can change a man's heart as wretched as the heart of Paul. I will also add that if there are laws that were broken, if someone has a past that demands restitution, then those things should be done. We should let the civil laws of our land, which God has given us for our blessing, run its course with anyone. And we should let God deal with that person. Remember, while Paul was now to be used mildly, God was not going to ignore the fact that he was a persecutor of the church in his past. God said, I will make sure that he repays. I will show him how much he must suffer for what he has done. And so Paul had the most difficult time of trials and tribulation in his ministry than any other apostle. And so God did deal with him and he will deal with all of us. But it is not really our jobs to deal with one another in the ways that God ought to deal with us. Ultimately, that left us with most of our New Testament today. If it wasn't for Paul and the fact that God picked him and used him, we would not have all of the books to the Romans, the Galatians, the Corinthians and so forth that we glean from so much today. So remember that whenever you read those books, about the atonement of Yeshua that made those books possible through a man like Paul changing him and not only changing him, but forgiving him. And and you know what? Like there's a part of me that's like, wow, God can use someone like Paul. Wow, that's crazy. And there's a part of me that's grateful because it means that God's grace is not too far for me. For when I make mistakes, when I fall short, think about the horrific things you've done. But then think about what Paul has done and how God forgave him and raised him as a leader in the church and a writer of scripture itself. I want to also touch on Peter. We all know about how Peter denied Yeshua three times at the crucifixion. But this is crazy when you consider how Peter walked with Christ face to face all those years before. And then at the moment of pressure, when everything was going down, he denied the Messiah. He denied before them all. And then the second time it says he denied it with an oath. And in the third time, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear that he does not know the man. And Peter wept bitterly. This is a picture of us all. We have all in some measure denied the Messiah. But think about how Peter did it with each denial. He denied deeper and deeper, even making an oath, even bringing a curse on himself, it says. But notice that this, as this happened before the cross, God's grace is revealed after the cross, because when 
Yeshua comes back resurrected, everything changes, even for Peter. Notice how the man sitting in the tomb, who was an angel, sitting there bringing report as to the resurrection to the one who came to hear and see, he says this, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel made note to not only tell to the disciples, but to Peter as an individual, because, of course, Yeshua knew that Peter needed to hear that he was on his mind and that he was forgiven him saying, Peter, I'm going to see you again soon in Galilee. That can you imagine what that would have done to Peter? I mean, I just want to get tears in my eyes because it's like Peter just denied him three times so deeply, so like with such conviction, even swearing an oath. And then the night and he's weeping bitterly. I can't imagine the place of shame, guilt and condemnation that Peter was in. Man, have you ever been in a place of shame, guilt and condemnation because you let God down? You denied him in some ways. Go to the deepest, darkest place of that. And then you hear the response of Yeshua in your time and your hour of repentance. His response is. I will see you soon. That is what he told Peter. I will see you soon, Peter, in Galilee. And that is what the Messiah is telling you. I will see you soon. Peter ends up being raised as the leader of the early church. And if he could raise someone like Peter to a leader, what could he do with your sins? And is his atonement not enough for you? Is his atonement not enough for us all? Let it never be again that we think that we say that we wonder as to whether he can forgive us as to whether his sacrifice is enough. He has called you for a time like this, not to wonder every day about whether he has enough to forgive you, enough mercy, enough grace. It's time for you to start wondering, how can you be a warrior for his kingdom more than ever before? How can you bring destruction upon the kingdom of darkness more than ever before? Stop doubting your redemption and start looking at how you can be a warrior in his hands. His grace is enough to give you freedom and his atonement enough to save you from judgment. Father, I pray right now for everyone who is listening to this, that your Holy Spirit would come, Lord, and make known to them your atonement. Father, you would come and convict them of their sin, righteousness and the judgment. But yet that you reveal to them the grace that you have that is so enough that they can put their sins on you and that you that you take it away, that you are the one who takes it as far as the east is from the west, that you are the one to whom we can go and find freedom. And Father, I pray and all who are listening that as I enter this next year, they will no longer doubt their standing with you or whether you can forgive them for what they've done. No matter how many times I've done it, how deep their sin is, whether they've murdered, whether they've stolen, whether they've looked at pornography, whether they've sinned in their hearts and gossiped and whatever they have done. Oh, God, I thank you that as you forgave Peter, as you forgave Paul, you forgive us. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us to look to you so that we can be free. Brothers and sisters, so oftentimes we are looking at our sin, we're looking at our sin, we're looking at our sin so as to avoid it. But what we ought to do is look to him because then our sin would vanish from the picture because our eyes are on him and he is the one who sets us free from our sin. We don't get set free from our sin by trying to avoid it by our own abilities. We get free from it by looking to him, being in his presence and crying for his power of the spirit to set us free from all of our sin. And he is trustworthy to do that. I pray that you have an amazing day of atonement. Share this video with anyone who may need to get a deeper taste of the grace of God. I want to say a special thank you to all of our partners who've made this teaching and every other teaching this month possible.